All right, thank you all for attending our third SRE forum slash workshop. Um, today for our, our session, I think we're going to go a little bit into some previous geopolitical reports I and some others made uh, for SRE. And the reason why I'd, I'd like to bring it up today in this session is really because I think that people don't understand what exactly is going on with our community right now. I think that in general, there is this false belief that we are ever expanding, ever growing um, in in our rootedness and in our identity and culture. So I'd, I'd like to be a little bit of a, of a pessimist, but also a bit of an optimist um, at the end and kind of describing what's going on. So first, I think that it's important here to understand um, why exactly these two in this this next part of the lecture is so uh, is so vital to the current Russian condition, and really it's because, as you can see here, vanishing youth, we have limited time, and people say, if you go to the homeland, you'll hear people say. Oh, oh, the young people aren't very interested um, in taking over these organizations uh, and things like that. But I mean, in a more broad scale, we can see across all domains of the Rusin community and society, uh, this dearth of leadership and potential. Um, and I believe this really began in the late 2000s and it's only progressed further to today. But from my understanding, and you can read this geopolitical report if, if you're more interested. Um, we have about 20 years left to really change the situation. That is, the organizations that that we already have. If you look from a, from 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 the white scale, we are constantly either merging or closing organizations year after year, and with that, we have a decreased ability to project our, I mean, we have limited power, but we have a decreased ability to to project the power that we have into the domains that we need to, whether this be politics, culture, etc. And so just keep this in mind as we go forward of that, well, why am I bringing up this next point? It's precisely because we only have, I think, roughly 20 years left. Um, another generation in, in Zakarpatia is looking like Almost everyone will be assimilated by then in Priyashiv. Um, they are, of course, not going to be assimilated per se, um, but we just don't have enough young people as writers, as activists. Um, and in Lemkovena, the story is very much the same. So with that in mind, let's go to the main topic of this speech. And it is the false myth of Rusin growth and effective action. This is really two things here. It is the it is the belief that we are constantly growing, like I said earlier, and also that the actions we are taking right now are effective and are leading for change. And I talk about this very specifically in the first ever geopolitical report that we had, the embedded stasis obligations. And I'll get to what that means in a little bit, but I lay out the case for my, so I lay out the case for why I believe Russian society has essentially stagnated. 
um, and not just about the youth, but just in general in all domains. Um, and we can kind of go over here. You can see uh, more exactly what the what the article says. Um, but my reasoning is precisely this: is that we can go down the list here, and and, and I'll explain more. Um, while the total amount of Rusins increased in the 2021 Slovak census, the number of speakers has decreased. Um, and now this range is not just 500 less speakers, it is in the thousands. And particularly, Rusins that put down their first identity as Rusin had also decreased by, I think, roughly 10,000. Um, there's been no major geopolitical change for Rusins in the last 15 years, and the recognition of Rusins in Ukraine is in no better of a situation. And really, this war has only exasperated, uh, exacerbated uh, this this situation in Zakarpatia, as we can see, of course, with the raid of the Orthodox Church in Ushrod and a number of other things. Uh, in 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 reality, when when you see a lot of these top organizations, such as the World Congress of Rusins, um, the the, the Carpathia Rusin Consortium in North America they don't have much evidence to show for any progress um the the world congress has kind of devolved over time and the consortium we'll get into later but this next point here of the average age of of, of membership in diaspora organizations um has risen to almost retirement age and i would say it's not only below 10 percent but it's probably below five percent by now um, I was a board member for CRS for, I wouldn't say two years, but it, it was almost two years, something along the lines. Um, and I got to be very familiar with the with the membership um, of of that organization. And I count people who are active and enrolled um, probably two to three percent. And this is the largest recent organization in North America. Of course, also too, we can look at. Um, I can keep going here. I mean, there, there, there's no Gen Z or early millennial founders or community leaders of, of organizations. Um, you know, this this is very apparent to anyone who's paying attention. Um, the World Congress of Rusins, um, and also too, we can we can see that the structure of Rusin society has only fragmented over time. If you look at 1991. It was really, it was never necessary that you had one or, or, or organization per region, but you had a very concentrated group that worked together to try to accomplish something. In Zakarpatia, you probably have 15 organizations with no clear goal, with no real membership base, um, and essentially just doing a couple of cultural activities every year and then saying that this, that this is activism. And of course, when we talk about growth, we also can't forget the political aspect, um, because there's still no Russian political parties or organizations uh, 30 years after. And the only reason why there is a minority member uh, in the Romanian parliament is because it's required by law, if they hit a certain standard, uh, to have a member. So really, this is not someone who uh, really, I think they maybe got like three to 4,000 votes in the last election in Romania. So this isn't someone who truly um, was, was elected by popular support in the normal way. Now, what I wanna talk about today that can help you understand this, um, besides me just giving you 
all these facts um, and, and really get to the meat of why this is occurring is something I call embedded stasis obligations. Now, really what this is, you, you, you can think of is built-in incentives and obligations to remain in stasis. This goes from the purpose, uh, the personal level to the organizational level. And uh, it is wide encompassing and it wasn't necessarily on purpose, but it is what has led us to the situation where we are truly stagnant. Um, as, as many of you probably know, a lot of the more creative types, um, a lot of the more um, revolutionary people uh, have been pushed away. And at the end of the day, these incentives and obligations uh, in within Rusin organizations and just for people in general, they not only um, may, they they not only hamper growth, but 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 they literally set boundaries, metaphysical boundaries, that which that if they are crossed, um, you're you're essentially going to be weeded out uh, automatically. And I'll get into a couple of these uh, in real life. And so, um, if if we go to specific obligations and incentives. Um, these are very apparent when when you look a bit deeper. Of course, career, what, what I mean by this is that a large percentage of our leadership, of our intelligentsia as Rusins are academics or they work for national governments. Now, what does this mean from an obligation and incentives perspective? Well, for, for the academic, they have to be non-partial or at least present as though they are non-partial to be taken seriously in their field. Um, not doing that, by, by having this situation where so many people are activists, essentially you crowd out, um, essentially you have a situation where they cannot advocate for Rusins to the first extent they probably should. And of course, for the many people who are probably wonderful individuals but work for national governments, they are obligated not to work against the state, and also they have incentive to not crush their career. In terms of funding, we can think of this as primarily in Europe, but also in some ways in America, um, where if, if you didn't know, many of the largest organization, organizations in Europe rely heavily on government funding. Now what this means in real, political terms is that they cannot do anything that jeopardizes this funding because if they do it will be pulled and they will close and they can do nothing so the reality is that they have to work within these very specific boundaries not not push too far not rock the boat and they in, instead of actually making change oftentimes there's a facade put on to act as though they are being revolutionary when really they are um, acting quite safe. Um, safety is self-explanatory, especially for those in, in, in Ukraine. Um, I, I, ideological boundaries, um, this I found very apparent through my experiences within the, the Russian American intelligentsia, um, is that any, any situation in which um, someone was particularly patriotic or nationalistic about their ruthiness was looked down upon. It's very much, especially in the diaspora, 
an international image. I believe John Rigetti told me in an interview long ago, uh, he said that it, it was a good thing that we did not have a state um, because we got to focus on, on, on cultural matters and essentially that we don't need a state because, you know, culture and all this is all we need. Um, I don't believe that to be accurate. In some ways, I think it is coping for failures, uh, but, in, but in another, this is very, this is a very powerful message um, that, that's running through the current leadership. And also, I think it's important to mention the last one of that, the majority of recent organizations in North America are based off of membership. And because of this, they have to work with what the membership wants. Now, what does this mean? It means oftentimes catering to the lowest common denominator and being deathly afraid of going against what the majority of people want. Now, that's okay if you truly are a membership organization, but there's this double game that, that is played with places like, like CRS, um, with many others that they act as though they're an, an activist, an ideological organization, um, and yet they are really structurally a social one. And so they're stuck between these two where they get all the funding uh, and all the support that an activist organization would have and yet are constrained by the limits of a membership one. And so if you see now if for CRS, the majority of their work is through what? Genealogy presentations. Um, it's through um, some type of uh, uh, by, by yearly uh, newspaper. And these are all okay, except it's this dual orientation of activism and social. So th this is an, uh, another thing that's not specifically, uh, not, not something I want to focus on too hard uh, in this presentation, but I think it's important to understand where a lot of this comes from. Now, I think this right here is a, perp is a perfect representation of what is wrong in Rusin activism as we see it today. Now, who made this? Well, it was CRS that made this. Um, it was for uh, the, the New Rusin Times. It was their official stance in here. And as you can see, it reads, the Carpatha Rusin community stands with Ukraine and condemns Russian aggression. Carpatha Rusins live in Ukraine, and Carpatha Rusins are fighting for Ukraine. The Carpatha Rusin community has always supported the, the territorial integrity of Ukraine. We Carpatha Rusins know how tyrants and autocrats have tried throughout history to destroy us, and so we defend the free, democratic world and a free and democratic Ukraine. As Carpatha Rusins, we fully support Ukraine's bid to join the European Union. We express our deepest solidarity with all the people of Ukraine as they bravely defend themselves against an unprovoked invasion. Bury and mourn their dead and support millions of displaced persons. Now, I think you know what is wrong with this. Of course, there's no mention of how Ukraine has treated us the last 30 years, nor how Ukrainian ideology has attempted to absorb Rusinus into their own national story. There, there, there's no mention of um, we perhaps we, we, we can fully support Ukraine's bid to, 
to, to join the European Union on the condition that they recognize Rusins. Um, that is a rather awkward wording, but this, this post is emblematic of what our current intelligentsia stands for. And well, why is this? Again, we can go back to the obligations of the majority of the board is either academics or career professionals. They get funding from the membership and also these ideological boundaries here of pushing this internationalist perspective. Um, and in return, uh, as, as we can probably notice as of late, um, nothing much has been gained from it. If anything, it seems as though Ukraine has backslided on the democratic front. And so it's, it's places like this where you can really see where things have failed. Now, one also note to, to attach to this that um, I wrote in my article about why the Carpathia Russian Society needs to die is that they didn't only go this far. They went so far as to many of the people who are on the, on the board of CRS are also part of the Carpathia Russian Consortium of North America. Let's say, think of this as like the top intellectual institution of, of, of Rusins within America and, and Canada. They wrote a letter to the Rusin organizations in the homeland um, saying that they essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, that um, they were quite disappointed that these, these Rusin or organizations um, supported Ukraine, but then mentioned that Ukraine hasn't treated them well um, and that they want to approve all messages that these Rusin or organizations in the homeland um, write as part of the World Congress of 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 Rusins. Um, and um, that just goes to show um, how, how incompetent we are. And so, um, but many people don't recognize these things have occurred. They don't understand the background behind what is really going on or, 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 or what is the stance. All anyone hears is that, oh, we, we are improving. We are these, um, we, we are these vanguards who are going forward and improving the condition of, of Rusins. Um, these very uh, nitty gritty political topics are ignored. So I should say here too, when talking about these embedded stasis obligations, and, and, and when you're looking at your own organization that you're a part of, or just one that you're interested in observing, it's, it's important to note that a lot of these have often weren't started like that. This picture, I believe, um, I could be wrong, is from the first ever World Congress. Um, and a lot of these people who began many of the organizations after um, 1989, but then after 1991, really, they had a true goal in mind. And essentially what I believe happened and what, if, if you kind of look back at the history, you, you can see this transition, is that it went from people who were very much everyday regular people, um, more revolutionary types. Um, as these organizations got bigger, um, as the funding pool from the EU expanded, um, as Slovakia and Poland um, and Hungary and Czechia joined the EU, the opportunity for national funding um, became available. And so what you see is that while some of this 
first rung of intelligentsia remained, a lot of what happened was that these these original people were um, essentially replaced by institutional players. And when I say institutional players, um, I, I mean those that will play the game, so to speak. And so a lot of these schools, um, you you know you can see um, you can see how more radical things were back then of even having a self autonomy vote in in Zakarpatia in 1991. A lot of these more radical things moved away. Um, we, we we made some pretty intense success in terms of having having Rusins be recognized as a national minority, but then again this kind of rot uh, from from the inside took hold and where really company men and people who wanted to play the game to get government funding really seeped into these places and took control. So when you think about how things happened, I don't necessarily think it's a positive like to see, hey, th this place has an extreme amount of um, embedded stasis obligations. That means these people are bad, the original setup was bad. Um, it's very complicated and you kind of, as, as you see, it's oftentimes a natural process in any company or organization to kind of go from from the from the revolutionary stage to this kind of institutional player stage. So, um, I think what we can do to change the situation is very simple, and I lay it out in four real points. Um, I think the first thing that we can do is the promotion of a more sovereignty-based Russian nationalism with a focus on the reconstitution of former ethnic inhabitation. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, essentially, focusing not so much on having us be free and having us being able to have festivals, but actually saying, hey, we want some type of autonomy in some places, some more... Um, politically uh, active part of our society. Uh, we want a Russian party, perhaps. But pushing this forward in the sense of taking control of our own destiny and being able to kind of reincorporate many of the areas that were assimilated into this, um, it, it's a vision that is forward-focusing and not just one of, hey, essentially, we, uh, we are we're free now and we just want to forever remain free. It's not a very compelling narrative to just have that. Um, I think again, too, to do this really depends on a new group of radical people displacing many of the current institutions, um, especially ones that are not tied um, to the national apparatus of these places. And that means that the, the rejection of cooperation and funding the rejection of many um, cooperative efforts um, that really uh, do no benefit to Russians themselves. And it really is taking this radical um, angle. I'm not, I, I, I don't necessarily mean um, separatism here. I just mean in the sense that um, we advocate for ourselves to lead ourselves uh, in no way, shape, or form really now. And to even attempt to do that uh, will create, I, I think, a domino effect, really, and in, in, in make it more compelling. Um, and then I think a last one that is quite important, um, especially for those of you who are, who are watching that are interested in becoming uh, 
a leader becoming a, a member of the kind of um, leadership um, is to really reject the folk-based identity that we currently have. We should not treat our own culture as a museum, but have a desire to evolve it into the 21st century while keeping the most beautiful elements of this of this original past. And the only way we can get to having a more sovereignty-based Bruce nationalism is really the rejection of the current folk-based identity um, in most of its forms. And so this really uh, gets to the end of the main part. Do Does anybody have any questions? Just think on these simple two sentences. The change to the current risk and condition will not come from our current leadership or organizations. The embedded stasis obligations within them are too great to be able to truly rectify from the inside. It requires a certain displacement of the old for the new to thrive. And with that, thank you for attending our third workshop and we'll move on to the discussion session.